Welcome to the Corkscrew podcast on practice research beyond the PhD. Your host is Dr Sophie Hope, a practice-based researcher in the Film, Media and Cultural Studies Department at Birkbeck, University of London. Each episode brings you up close and personal to Sophie and a guest. We invite you to listen in to these personal stories and to be inspired. Hello, in this episode I'm talking to Cara Davies. Cara completed her PhD in 2017 from the University of Bristol and Cara's PhD was titled Activating Archives, Interrogating the Integration of Archival Theory in Creative and Curatorial Strategies for Performance Art. Well, um, it was AHRC funded PhD and I began in July 2011, Um, but it came through the opportunity came through a specific project that the university was advertising at the time. Um, I'd actually gone for just a general PhD um, scholarship there, but wasn't lucky on that occasion. But actually, I think that was that was kind of a blessing in disguise because this project called Performing Documents came up and it was based around looking at modelling different creative and curatorial strategies and engagements with archives and performance documentation. And the layout, um, it was structured around three strands, one which looked at engaging with, um, looking at artists who engage with their own archival material, artists who engage with other artists' materials, and then looking at institutions that enabled artists or or curators or uh, interested parties to uh, recontextualise the archival materials that they may hold within their their institution. Um, And it was just quite uncanny. The, The PhD proposal I'd put together sort of looked at methodologies for Um, creative and curatorial interventions within archives so looking at the ways that we could recontextualize represent and reinterpret archival materials through performances through exhibitions so uh, within that um, I developed a methodology for the title of the piece which was called activating archives uh, interrogating the integration of archival theory in creative and curatorial strategies for performance art. So that's the bit of the mouthful, <laughs> the mouthful part of PhD. Um, but it came out, I suppose, it came out of two a two pronged approach. So through practice um, and kind of a critical awareness of the kind of contemporary field of performance art and a live art where there was a predilection for working with archives. There was also an increased need and discussion around documentation and what that meant in terms of kind of the presentation of live art, uh, the kind of the ontology of what performance is. Um, but increasingly people were using were using terminology and methods from from the archival field within the performance is themselves or within the exhibitions and exposing those techniques. However, that was always kind of done sometimes with a with maybe not a a holistic awareness of where those terms have come from and how those techniques have developed. There was a lot of appropriation and a lot of fixation about, well, what does documentation mean about the live event? Um, So I wanted to kind of move beyond those arguments and started to think about my own practice as being an archive assistant and working alongside university collections at the University of Chichester and Dartington College of Arts, where I was given um, kind of an interesting uh, 
access point really to these collections as a as a student and as an artist to to work alongside the librarians and archivists of these collections um, gain kind of tra some training training experience it was completely informal but it you know it was attended by all kind of professions or students and researchers at the time and I was really curious about what that meant um, having kind of like this legitimate training but in an illegitimate way um, and what kind of authority that might give you over the ownership of uh, using methodologies and using strategies so so the PhD kind of developed from there and to marry up to the performing documents project I developed the project in three strands too so the first strand I built my own archive uh, the second strand I worked with another artist's archive which happened to be Franco B um, and his archive is based at Bristol University with the theatre collection and then I worked alongside Performance Reenactment Society for their project um, group show which took place at Arnold Feeney in September 2012. Um, I could go into details of that but um, it basically I suppose for maybe what you're more interested in about it being practice-based or practice-led is that my PhD actually started with my own practice in building the archive so on day one on July 2011 I I was already immersed within the performance um, I was creating for that project. It was called Instability in Stability. And I lived in my mother's loft for three months and the project was broadcasted online and audiences could engage with me. And the project was really asking very simple, basic questions around why do we keep the things we do? How do we order the items we keep in our homes? Thinking about the role of domestic spaces as collection points and collection hubs and through opening up those questions and kind of showing the doing of making the archive it started to uh, provoke audience members to show their doing and show their methodologies and help to raise questions around what is an archive where is it kept um, who has the right to create these these holdings these collections and create histories and mm. what histories are missing from from the collections that are you know uh, already go to collections that we are we know are very well established and institutionalized let's say um, and from there that allowed basically opened up a whole plethora of ideas for going off and furthering kind of that practical knowledge with theoretical knowledge and backing it up for, with um, readings, critical writings, uh, attending workshops, conferences in both the performing arts, theatre and also then archive, uh, the archive studies. And just um, uh, as a bit of background, so yeah. could you say a bit more about what your practice was prior to the PhD and how that then fed into you living in your mother's loft? <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. So my practice prior, uh, my background and training is performing arts and dance. And so it was a very much an embodied uh, performance based practice. And I did an MA. So that was my BA. And then I moved into an MA at Dartington College of Arts, which was called Contemporary Arts Practice and Dissemination. And it was a two year full time MA modelled on a European style um, course where the first year is intensive teaching and then the second year was based on um, having a six to nine month residency abroad where you would either work or 
be placed in uh, another university. And then you'd have another kind of period of six, roughly six months to create a practical outcome. And at that time, um, I was still interested in kind of the live body embodiment movement and how our kind of lived experiences might be translated into documentation. So where I mentioned I was an archive assistant, I was working alongside the doc, um, the librarian John Sanford and looking at the contemporary um, art performance art uh, archive that they held there. And so I was just increasingly interested in how I got to know the other students through the documentation and then from watching documentations, kind of raising questions around identity, identification, how do we start to describe what we see and how that kind of juxtap is juxtaposed by what we experience kind of uh, uh, for ourselves. Um, and really that was manifesting itself through performances, uh, installation works at that time. And really I hadn't ever thought about doing online broadcasting until I was forced into a situation to consider how do I make my practice work from, from a space that isn't conducive to creating practice. So, so at the time of the MA, I would have access to theatre spaces, the library, to lecture studios, obviously a great programme of um, lectures, uh, extracurricular kind of mentoring sessions, kind of so many activities. Whereas when the MA stopped, I had to return home. And, you know, a lot of people probably experience this sudden shift of going back to your parents' home or your family home and really falling back into certain cat uh, kind of, I suppose, uh, old habits and old patterns of living. And when you're squashed into a small room and all your belongings go up into the loft, a lot of who you are and how you express yourself becomes quite squashed. Um, and it just seemed an apt way of thinking about, well, oftentimes archives are thought of these dusty old spaces. And I think Caroline Stedman's book, Dust, kind of encapsulates all those ideas really beautifully in terms of our kind of preconceptions of what archives are. And by going up into that space, into that often not visited or only, you know, only entered into on special occasions, uh, the loft space becomes this, uh, it becomes a really interesting place for activating memories, activating connections. And really that's where the kind of, the idea of activating archives came from is that it's about opening up those dialogues and conversations with others to understand what these resources could mean to them and how, um, if there is any use value. And actually maybe the use value isn't that it is in that these objects continue to function as they were once bought it's almost like a memory trigger as a as a kind of comfort or or a sense of you know holding on to as an expression of identity really practical question how mm -hmm. what when you when did you graduate from your dartington ma yeah certainly so that was um 2010 so you went on you had a year um, of living yes. back at home and then started your uh, PhD in 2011? Yeah, so it was just under eight months all in all because I think I, f I finished in the August for the MA. Um, then, yes, started in the July. Were you, when you were doing your MA, it was a PhD, the kind of, of well, mm. how did you think, oh, I want to continue 
was it because there was a funding application uh, opportunity that came up or what, what yeah what made you um, think PhD is the way forward <laughs> to be honest if I'm uh, I hadn't even heard of a PhD it was one of those things that we knew there was PhD students about during the MA but it wasn't really something that had been explained what it what it was as a as a as a course or really a, well I thought it was a course <laughs> at that time um, and it wasn't until I handed in my MA proposal for the, the thesis and I hadn't I went in for my tutorial and the supervisor kind of did this quite dramatic thing and said this isn't um, a thesis proposal and I was like oh god oh, all right what, okay what do I need to work on he said no 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 you've got too much here this is actually a, a PhD proposal that you've presented to me and I was kind of a bit like okay what does that mean uh, in what way did do I kind of then start to deal with <laughs> but what that meant? And, and, and essentially what I ended up doing is creating something that had a, a, a kind of quite a deep, a wide ranging scope in terms of questions. It needed a lot more time, um, a lot more resourcing to think about how to put it into action. But what he kind of started to make me realise was that I had a particular way of thinking through how questions could be activated through practice. And that I had a kind of a core set of three, four questions, which actually had a very um, kind of if I, once I thought about how that could be put into practice, it felt like a logical kind of context um, for, for, in, for an inquiry to look at, basically. Mm. Um, and he, I was invited, that was through Dartington as it was merging with Falmouth. So I was invited to then put in a proposal for Falmouth and um, I was lucky to get in but they didn't have any funding so I asked to postpone for a year whilst I thought about how I could kind of fund fund the, the PhD potentially at Falmouth but it gave me the opportunity to actually think about where I wanted to locate the research, who might be best placed to support that. So then I started to look around and I applied to two or three other places um, and had a, a series of meetings with potential supervisors and settled with Bristol. And do you, um, at Bristol, did they have a good sort of setup for supporting you to develop things through practice, develop your research through practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the key reasons why I felt so drawn to go there. One, the department at that time and, and continues to do so is very well known for its interest in in historiography, documentation of performance. Um, it's got one of the largest collections of British theatre um, archive collections in, in the world. I think it's kind of second or third to the V&A's collection and one of the largest collections of live art practice. So it, it was very well resourced in the sense of physical resources, um, but in terms of a setup of a network where you felt kind of supported, there was a huge cohort at that time of PhD students um, who were very active in setting up something similar to corkscrew let's say but nowhere near as i suppose as outward facing um where they uh, where each year a student representative would take on the role of curating a series of talks um there'd be sh uh, practical sharing sessions then there'd be critical sessions where we'd look at different readings or critical texts um that might be pertinent to one or a few of our practices and 
um, each year we'd have a symposium and a sharing, a sharing basically of practice. So it felt like everyone was interested in taking their time in getting to know who you were as an individual, but also as a researcher and helping you to further that and deepen your engagement with your questions and methodology. So my practice actually only took two and a half years to complete. Mm. Um, it was a really fast process and it was definitely helped by being part of, um, I would say, the HRC project performing documents. There was uh, quite a kind of intensive series of programming, which gave me great deadlines to kind of work to and inspire um, me to kind of kind of accumulate and, and synthesize everything I'd been researching and practicing up to that point. And then I had a personal experience where I had to take a year out to to be a carer. And I think in lots of ways, that's very definitive then of the writing process that I had. It took me another year to do the writing. And um, I submitted that writing in summer of 2016. And then I had to wait seven months for my viva. <laughs> mm. And again, then there's particular processes through Bristol where you, your time for your corrections starts after the exam board released the examiner's reports. And because of my timing, I had to wait a couple of months for the report. And then, you know, so I finally submitted every, all the corrections by summer last year. Mm. Um, so a long process. <laughs> and when you were saying about the two point five years uh, two and a half sorry two and a half years practice yeah. was, what's your relationship between um what how do you define practice in that sense mm. do you because you're also obviously engaging with theory and um and histories and um other organizations how do, yeah where, where what's the sort of thread of your practice through that yes yeah, so, um i think what's um, kind of been a really good framework is um, oh, I'm going to forget their first names, but I know the it's Smith and Dean have um, they have something called the Iterif Cyclical Web of Practice-Led Research and Research-Led Practice, which mm. I can share um, the diagram for for it. But I think it definitely was initiated with practice-led research, which triggered uh, you know it, it was ideas and and process driven, which triggered the need for critical underpinning, which then kind of took me into a period of academic research. So more traditional hermeneutic approach of kind of very in-depth reading of theory and uh, methodological texts. And then I had a period of retranslating some of those methods back into practice and considering then what and how that academic research could lead the development of a new piece of practice um so does that kind of make sense it does it, but that sounds really clear did you did mm. it feel clear when you were going through it or in uh, hindsight were you like oh yeah that's what happened it was practice no, I, academic research yeah practice. it knew no, it it was really it was really clear because um i think I think where I had a really clear drive that I wanted to leap off what I'd been finding out through the MA thesis, which was, that was a bit more blurry, where I wasn't really sure, I was kind of doing a bit of practice, a bit of academic research, and kind of seeing how they might fall together, and in the end I came up more with a conceptual piece for the end piece of practice. It was an installation, as it was a proposal as an installation. So, so then I was really excited to be able to go, right, okay, no, I, I need to make this piece of practice. And it was very much context-driven, as I 
explained with the the situation that I was living in. But actually, it was a way then to a way to open up a wider social um, and kind of methodological discourse, which made sense because I needed to start to understand, I suppose, other people's perspectives. And then see how then theorists were talking about that. And, and, and you know, uh, when I say theorists, I've, I've read a lot around uh, in archival studies that actually the, the theoreticians are archivists themselves. Mm. And they're looking at those practical perspectives. So they've had a very similar trajectory in that actually they've maybe been years in practice. And then they've needed to be writing about their methods to understand them further and see if they do have a wider applicability and what the impact of that applicability is. And do you, um, just out of interest with your mm. community of practice researchers in, in Bristol, yes. was, was that quite common to start the initial, that first year with, with practice? No, oh. <laughs> no, not, not at all. A lot of people uh, would be starting with their literature review. Mm. Uh, actually, I've really, I've, I've not found anyone who has actually begun their first couple of months within a piece of practice um, and there's a few people who have had ongoing kind of maybe uh, say for instance there's a couple of choreographers I know who who have been working with particular community groups and that had been established for years and that was a way to uh, for them to embed kind of questions into their practice and also retrieve the knowledge from that embodied experience um, but I think for a lot of people uh, within our cohort, it was about finding their feet. I think they struggled with what their methodology was at times. Um, but then again, I maybe mine was specifically a methodological PhD, it all testing the methodologies of archival studies within performance art. So I kind of had a, quite a clear structure and aim. Mm-hmm. But it does take time, and I think. You know, whilst I had that first piece of practice, it then was a year and a half before my my second piece of practice working with Franco's archive. Mm. And that naturally, it, it, it took time to evolve. So through the reading and also through volunteering at the theatre collection and working with his with his particular holdings, it started, you know, the questions that needed to be or I felt needed to be asked or were coming out of that opportunity of volunteering uh, then started to present the framework of of developing a particular exhibition and what that exhibition would be focused on, mm-hmm. which is I think more typical of of the cohort that I was working alongside. And what um what just moving on to kind of mm. post hand in let's say what um have you how have you been um, working since then since the hand in and uh, yeah certainly so. Again, it's very circumstantial where I'd chosen uh, to move, uh, where I relocated to Bristol and then had a particular family experience. I found I was living between three cities because my partner was based in London, I was based in Bristol, and then my family member who was quite unwell was uh, based in a third location. So I tried, to, I, I had to cut down traveling and move to London. and that in a way cut my tie with the artistic and professional field I was I developed in Bristol and felt secure in. Um, however, at the same time, old connections had started to reappear and conversations had developed with colleagues that I'd known at Dartington, who now taught at Falmouth, and I was given the opportunity to 
lead some research intensive sessions and they've kind of been ongoing now for since 2015 2016 um and for the first few years they had a particular feel and format where I would be down for two week period and running sessions on on research uh, and practice and looking at the integration um, of archival and documentation within uh, the dancers uh, the dance departments and the, and some of the dance modules there so looking at spaces for research and for practice and kind of thinking about how the library and archives could offer a remit for dancers to look at embodied research so that was really interesting because it, it was a very fabulous opportunity to actually put into practice kind of some of the outcomes that were coming from the PhD um, but that wasn't full-time work, so unfortunately I had to look at getting a temp job to to kind of supplement my income. And I don't know, I, I'm going to be one of those annoying people who said that this just this circumstances just happened upon me. But I went to any old temp agency, and the lady said, "Oh well, great, you've you know, you can see you're quite diligent. You've you've worked in a number of places." you know I've always worked alongside my my studies so I've, I've had a range of experience within offices or hospitality or retail um, and she was like well I've got this kind of um, administrative job um, it's with the construction company and I was like oh okay fine she was like don't worry I think you can do it standing on your head because of your background and your degrees and everything and then I went in on the first day and the first thing they asked me to do was organize their archive boxes they had no idea of my background on my CV, but it was just so uncanny that I felt I felt compelled to stay and see it through. And so, since since twenty uh, yeah since twenty fifteen on and off, I've I've become a document controller for for construction companies, <laughs> along <laughs> alongside keeping up basically a guest lecturing role at Falmouth. Um, I've done a stint at Chichester. I did a, a module there last year in site specific practice, which draws in part of my my role as co artistic director of the Arts and Research Collective, tracing the pathway. So alongside my part time construction job. <laughs> your lecturing job I'm also um running this collective with uh, Ashley Beaumont and Madsfloor Anderson yes and I think that kind of sums it up with yeah, some projects in in between lots of projects in between. and have you um in terms of your uh those various um hats you're wearing do you um do you I guess it's particularly through the tracing the pathway project but maybe through the yes. other jobs as well do you feel like you're continuing as a practice-led researcher yeah that's I think that's really interesting for the other hats but yes primarily you're correct in that tracing the pathway as a self-defined arts and research collective we very much work in that practice-led research um, framework where we have a set of ideas and we want to put it into practice and through putting it into practice we see what knowledge is coming up and we often then create uh, connected with critical and academic research and writing we're very much driven by philosophy theoretical frameworks uh, social kind of policy and and kind of uh, you know act, very much an activist approach mm -hmm. as well um, so it's bringing together very much um, 
our individual interests, but as a collective, it then formulates a lot around site responsive, socially responsive projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, for instance, the project we're doing at the moment is called Groundwork, which is looking at resourcing and provisioning within the locales of our of our hometowns whereas you may have gathered from my description earlier it 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 didn't have a particular sense of identity or network before but we're looking at what 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 needs to go into creating particular cultural infrastructures and to allow grassroots initiatives to come forward so so at the moment we're very much in the questioning stage and we're seeing where how that um, might develop and at the moment we're doing that through putting on a particular program which brings together local and national artists to ask similar questions at this particular location. Mm. Then in terms of my other areas, so what's been interesting about the construction job is that I've worked for the same client under many different company guises and the it's come to the attention of one of the main managers, my PhD background, and because of the research-led aspect that he he, he has maybe um, perceived the PhD to have, rather than actually knowing the nuances of my background, I've been invited to work for his own company, and with the recent changes in data protection law, which many might be familiar with, um, I've been invited to do a lot of research around the general data protection regulation and the changes in EU policy and regulations. So I've been doing very, very thorough kind of critical analysis of what these regulations are and what impact it might have on particularly their business. So it's it's a very, very different field, but actually using quite a lot of the fundamental um, interpretive deep reading skills that have been brought up through the PhD. Mm. Um, and then we've got to put them into practice by putting them into creating specific documents that, you know, act as kind of policies, as frameworks for the company to operate in a particularly um, kind of uh, legal and, and ethically favourable manner. Mm. And in terms of your kind of future, I guess, are you, because you're, um, it's, it's working, what's the role of like, the academic context mm. of the university in your future? Does it play a part, do you think? Yes, I, I have to say, I think part of the reasons why I did a PhD was because I was almost, let's say, fearful of stepping out of the comfort zone and the framework that the education industry offered. I knew no different, uh, you know, I suppose I've, uh, I've been a perpetual student up until I've been 30 and all of a sudden, you know, uh, leaving that behind doesn't, uh, let's say, I don't feel like I've left it behind, but the thought of leaving it behind feels like I'm leaving part of who I am and who my identity is. But I was really interested in in what you were asking in your email and potentially the events coming up around um, what is the figure of the practice researcher is no, who's no longer hosted by the university and, and, and what platforms are there for working beyond beyond the academic institution? And I think... I very much would like to think that I'm still an academic, but the reality of trying to maintain an academic profile 
in, in in keeping up with publishing, the pressure of of going to conferences but not having the funding or an institutional affiliation become becomes a lot harder. And especially when you might be in a similar situation to myself where you're interdisciplinary, you're freelancing, you're working across different industries, something's got to give. Um, however, there are many, so many organisations who are really engaged with critical and similar, uh, you know, non-academic but theoretical ways of questioning the world. I think that that's a very interesting framework for me to consider how um, critical thinking and practice, practical research, practice-led research can sit outside of an, a university. Um, I feel like there's questions around, do we need universities to legitimise practice-based research? Um, and I think, actually, it's funny that then there's sort of these introductions now of courses such as Live Art Development Agency working alongside kind of Queen Mary's and um, uh, Roehampton. I think it's funny now that a lot of universities are, are, are asking their staff to be more industry-based, to, to, to consider what those connections are between academia and, and I don't want to say real life, sorry, that's yeah. um, not the right word, but, you know, something that's rooted within more everyday practice, I mm. suppose. Mm. Um, so, funny enough, I think I'm walking away from it to be from a, a full-time lecturer, but actually I think I'm very open still to going back and considering ways that we can translate that industry practice into educational contexts, whether that is within universities or within arts organisations, cultural organisations. Hmm. For me, and, and also maybe not having a huge desire right now to be fully immersed within a university context is because of the energy that it does take to do a PhD. And I think one of the many things that a lot of people have said to me is you don't need to rush. I think there's a lot of pressure on PhD students to have made their decision before they finish the PhD and what they're doing next. And I think I had that at a time where I was going into a period where I couldn't finish my writing. And I put myself under a lot of undue pressure. And actually, in coming out the other side, I think it's been a really, it's kind of been a very refreshing experience to go out to work and work in a very different industry. And I'm now feeling much more revitalized to translate that back into my practice and to have some time to assimilate that. And, st and I, and, you know, I, I suppose I, I still do go to conferences. I still present on my work. Um, and tracing the pathway do. So it's about making sure uh, we can learn from other perspectives, other stakeholders perhaps, and recoup that energy in order to kind of go back fighting to navigate the bureaucracy of university life and um, hopefully make some more changes from that practice, let's say. <laughs> Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak on this because I think it you know, PhDs are also very personal journeys. And I think that personal connection often does feed into the ways we interpret and start to formulate knowledge too. And um, it's not often accepted or, or, or um, you know, we've got to kind of separate that work-life relationship sometimes. And I think my research really Im embedded those together, that they're not separate. Uh, but it's very difficult to talk about that. Um, and to actually acknowledge that these are huge, huge pivotal kind of impacts on the decisions we make 
in terms of how the PhD and the research might develop. Um, and I think, again, as you're transitioning out of the PhD, it really impacts on, on that on that balance of, well, let's see what happens and really forcefully choosing what path to go. Because I, I definitely had that and I definitely really wanted to go into academia, let's say in 2015, as I was finishing or, or thought I would be finishing. Um, and actually, I think I burnt out from trying to do too much too quickly. And this has been a much more natural. And also it feels more research and practice led in a way. I'm, I'm feeling as I go and I just have the lucky situation that my my current work situation does allow me still to move, have a bit of fluidity um and, and that would be maybe that's the biggest challenge for me going forward is how do I sustain that and can I sustain that mentally energy level wise mm. um so that's why I say to everyone please take care of yourself and protect yourself and think about you know um not trying to be everything and do everything at once Thank you for listening to the Corkscrew podcast brought to you by Birkbeck University of London. If you'd like to join the conversation, visit our website in the show notes and sign up to our email list.